Today is Friday, September 29, 2023. This is Quick Start from CBN News. I'm Dan Andros. Tens of thousands of Christians are fleeing persecution, and the media is largely silent on it. We'll have that top story and more on today's podcast, where we bring you news from a Christian perspective. Subscribe and leave a rating. Email us, quickstartpodcast at cbn.org. Joining me now to get through the news of the cray, Billy Hallowell, Trey Gons Phillips. What's up, guys? Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Another day in paradise. The weekend's here, almost. Almost. One more work day. I have a random fact for you guys. I wanted to throw this out there. Did you know the record for the longest time holding your breath underwater is 22 minutes and 22 seconds? I I just happened to see this, and I was like, I cannot. I cannot. They apparently fish involved in this? Like, what in the world? They apparently hyperventilate, like, oxygen or something right before they do this. And the the record for people not doing that is only eleven minutes, thirty five seconds. So oh, I mean, just eleven minutes. Eleven. I mean, I I struggle just, after eleven seconds. I agree. That seems fake. It seems impossible to me. I don't know how. Yeah, I don't believe it. I don't believe it fake either. News. We'll, we'll just call it guilt. We'll call it fake news and move on. If you've held your breath for longer than ten minutes, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> and <laughs> but, you're probably like half fish. Half fish, right? Indeed, mermaid. All Morning. right. Yeah, yeah, there we go. We got. Uh, let's get to the serious stuff, though. We got a lot coming up on the podcast today. What's the focus story? Yeah, we're going to be talking about Kathy Ireland. She made some very interesting faith um, proclamations, I would say, and proclamations about life. So we'll get into that. All right. Looking forward to hearing on that. We've got a serious situation. We've been reporting on it. Nagorno-Karabakh. A lot of Christians there. They're fleeing by the tens of thousands. Media is largely ignoring this. And Billy's going to be digging in on that for the main thing. But first, we're going to get through the news here in 90 seconds. And the Senate has unanimously passed a bipartisan resolution approving a formal dress code that requires senators to wear business attire on the Senate floor. This move came after Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer relaxed the informal dress code all because of John Fetterman, who'd been wearing shorts and hoodies and uh, making a lot of headlines based on his casual attire. And the resolution requires that business attire be worn on the floor of the Senate, which for men shall include a coat, tie, and slacks or other long pants. The National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. had Confederate-themed stained glass windows featuring Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson for 65 years. And it was intended to promote post-Civil War reconciliation. They've now been replaced with new windows that feature black protesters holding signs that read fairness and no foul play. The idea of removing the symbols from the cathedral rose back in 2015 after the Charleston Church Massacre. And artificial intelligence has been used on the famous Shroud of Turin to reveal the image of the man on the cloth that some believe is Jesus. The resulting faint image, they say, left on the cloth um, resulted from an energy burst that happened at the time of Christ's resurrection. Those are just some of today's top headlines. You can check out those stories and more over at CBNNews.com. A couple things, guys. I mean, first, this AI. I only bring it up because can we stop with trying to painting pictures of Jesus? It's just not. We're, we're not going to know on this side of eternity. I mean, it's just. No, Dan. No, the AI knows. The, the AI, AI knows, knows. based yeah. on the X-ray image from two thousand years ago. Right. It knows. <laughs> right. That may or may not be actually the actual 
cloth, right? Like we don't yeah. know for sure. And I probably think the, we'll never know. The funny thing about this is that people are acting as if AI is somehow this autonomous, this like intelligent life that is separate from us and is, is saying like, oh, this is what Jesus looked like. But in reality, AI can only, it, it's only going to spit out something based on the information that we as human beings have already given it. So yeah. it's it just not this like new revelation that we've all of a sudden like, oh my goodness, nobody has ever painted a picture of what Jesus might have looked like ever before and no one ever will be as accurate as ai is right now um so yeah it's really kind of fired cool. up about this trey i think it's cool but i also think like it's only going to be as good as the information we give it and we can't get like you were saying dan we can't give it but so much information because yeah. we have no earthly idea what jesus actually looks like well my favorite application of ai recently when it comes to faith was someone asked AI to draw the art one to draw a picture of Jesus flipping over the tables. And it was instead of him actually taking the table and flipping it, it was him doing a backflip over, over the, the table. table. <laughs> Which we also don't know that didn't happen. <laughs> oh, it's just a great visual uh, interpretation of, of a great visual of poor uh, biblical interpretation. Ridiculous. It's just really funny. Yeah, if we keep going, we'll be in plenty of trouble. So. Yeah, yeah. Is anybody indeed. concerned about? Because Trey, to your point, we're pouring all this stuff into it based on the headlines. Is anybody concerned about what in the world AI is going to be telling us based on our crazy culture and what we're pouring oh, into it? Oh my gosh, I'm concerned about it. Yeah, when anytime we see a reflection of what our current crazy culture is doing, because that's all it would do. Like you said, Trey, it's only as good as the information you put in. And as we said on Faith versus Culture last week, garbage in, garbage out, guys. So that's essentially what you'll probably be getting if it tries to show pictures of culture because yes. there's a lot of chaos happening as we so all know. So we're doomed. Basically. Yeah, we're doomed. We're, we're doomed. doomed. That's basically the moral of the story. Happy Friday, everybody. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everybody. All right. We're going to move on here. We have a, a focus story to get to with Model turned entrepreneur Kathy Ireland and she has a message for the church when it comes to the life issue. So what what's going on here? Yeah, so this is a, a really uplifting, I think, an interesting story. Kathy Ireland, people know who she is. She was recently honored um, at this influential pro-life gala out in California. And she was speaking, you know, while she was accepting this award. And again, she was honored for her pro-life values. And this particular award show was the Life Awards. It was part of Live Action's annual event. And you know, she was talking about how, as a young adult, she actually was a pro-choice Christian. That's how she identified. She said, as a young adult, I identified as a pro-choice Christian. It just shows you the state of our nation. How does that happen? And so, yeah, she started getting into how in her 40s, so she became a Christian when she was 18 years old. And in her 40s, she was still pro-choice. She was walking around saying, I'm a pro-choice Christian, but she started to read the Bible more and to understand based on her comments that abortion didn't really comport at all and doesn't comport at all with scripture and that it actually violates God's truth. And then she talked about the importance of calling on believers in churches to really step up you know, to the plate on this. So just really interesting comments from somebody who, you know, she went from supermodel to an entrepreneur. She's got a, a huge company now, um, Kathy Ireland Worldwide, makes a lot of products. And, you know, just it's just kind of interesting to see somebody like her saying this. Yeah, and it also shows, I think, the power of just narratives because it seems like in her mind, she was probably in that world with a lot of progressive, left-leaning people in Hollywood and the, and the uh, celebrity world. 
and you get a narrative that feels comfortable. Well, yeah, I'm I'm a Christian, but I can be still progressive on this and be in this safe space and then not really be challenged on it. So you can see the effect that those sorts of things can have on people. And then scripture revealed that to her and opened her eyes. So that's great. But uh, what did she say about post-abortive women? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, she went from sort of calling on waking up the churches. She's like, we got to wake up the churches. We got to wake up. And then she pivoted into talking about women who have had abortions. And this is something that sometimes gets lost in this because it's such a it's such an article of shame, right? If you've had an abortion, most people are feeling shame about it or they don't want to talk about it. There's a reason it's so sensitive because it's the ending of a human life. And, you know, she said, you know, to the women who've had abortions, the estimation is one in four. Just so, just know that nothing is too big for God. We bring it to him. We repent. He redeems and restores. And so she's giving the gospel message in that and extending that olive branch to women to let them know, like, you can be forgiven for this. You can speak out about this. You can talk about it, or you can at least go to God and deal with this. You don't have to hold on to this sin and, and live in this, in this shame. You can repent and he will restore you. And so I thought that was a really cool line. And this, of course, was all transcribed by live action. We haven't seen the video yet, but it was really, I'm sure she said other great things, but it was really cool to see. Yeah, definitely. What else? She's spoken out about her faith in the past, right? She has. And it's it's been one of those central themes that we've seen you know, throughout her career. But more recently, she's really kind of dug in. In fact, in February, she told Fox News, the most important relationship in my life is with Jesus. And though I became a Christian at 18, I am so grateful that God is so patient and so gracious. And I thought that was an interesting quote, looking back on it now, because she's talking about the fact you know, that she was calling herself a pro-choice Christian into her 40s, right? And yet, yet she was a Christian. And so God was patient with her as she learned and grew. And I think it shows we all learn and grow as, as we go, right? Yeah, and we have this sanctification process. So there's you know salvation and followed by sanctification. We're constantly growing. We're not going to be perfect on this side of eternity, of course, but we should be striving to not be a baby Christian for the rest of our lives and to constantly look for areas in our lives where we can grow. Yeah, I think yeah. it's awesome that she's willing to speak out about this. And it's cool that she's been open about the evolution of her faith and her views on these issues, because I think in some ways that takes even more bravery to be willing to say uh, how how your opinion has changed or how you're, you've evolved on an issue and to see, um, yeah, that she's willing to stand up and say, look, this is this is what I believe on this issue. Uh, and, and I, you know, I've made mistakes in the past. I haven't always said it the way that I want to say it or, you know, whatever, but yeah, to be, to be willing to speak up with boldness, I think in today's climate, especially if you're a celebrity, it's hard for all of us, but if you're somebody who's in the limelight, I think there's an extra layer of stress that comes with doing that. I know we've talked about that before with people like Chris Pratt too. It's not that we elevate these people as more important than anybody else. It's that they're living in a world that's that they're constantly being inundated with pressure from everybody that they're working with to change their opinion. So yeah, uh, yeah kudos to her for sticking with her, her convictions. Yeah. And I, I liked her comments, Billy, that you were laying out about post-abortive women. How do we approach them? Because yeah, it's a tough balance because you don't want to go too soft on it and be too like, Oh, it's okay. And not, speak the truth about the gravity of the situation. As you mentioned, Billy, it's the ending of a human life, right? So, but you also don't want to go too far to where the person doesn't feel that they're redeemable. And as you said, and as she said, you know, everything, you know, Christ can redeem everything. Um, 
And again, that doesn't mean we do we go on sinning and live in our sin. No, of course not. As Paul says in Romans, we you know look to go forward and and turn from our sin. But um, so it's this balance that you have to have in the messaging, and it's and she struck it pretty well. So uh, I definitely appreciated that, and um, you know appreciate you bringing her comments to the podcast today. Thanks. All right, we are going to head over to the main thing now, and tens of thousands of ethnic and Christian Armenians are fleeing Nagorno-Karabakh right now. Chaos is all over the place right now. It's really out of control, not getting a ton of media coverage. Joel Veldkamp's head of international communications for Christian Solidarity International. He joined Billy to discuss the current situation, the history, and what could come soon. That's today's main thing. Joel, for the past almost year, and I know even longer than that, you have been sounding the alarm on what has been going on in Nagorno-Karabakh, and we're now watching a very horrific situation unfold there after this attack by Azerbaijan and watching people flee and leave the region. We're going to get into all of that, but as you're watching all of this unfold in light of the warnings that you have been giving and a lot of people not listening in, in power and leadership... What's going through your heart and your mind right now? I feel like this is, is a failure for me. It's a failure uh, for the organization I work for. We should have done more. I'm thinking of all the things we might have done differently. Um, it was very hard to get people to listen about this. It was very hard to, to get doors opened about this. Um, and now I'm just, I'm filled with, with regret and, um, and sorrow. It's, it's our worst nightmare come to life right before our eyes. Um, we, we saw it coming. We, we warned people it was coming. The Armenians warned people that it was coming. We tried to amplify their voices as much as we could as a small organization, and it just wasn't enough. Well, first of all, you and your organization, you have been consistently, anybody paying attention, sounding the alarm on this and letting everybody know that this was something that was coming. I mean, if we go back to December when you and I first started talking about this and doing interviews on this, you were very consistent warning that this could become a genocide, that this was a recipe for disaster. And so I feel you guys have done great work alerting people and you continue to let people know this is a very complicated issue with a deep history. And I think people, when that happens, it gets confusing for people who aren't paying close attention to understand exactly what is happening. And so right now, just so people get a sense, let's talk about the current situation. And we can kind of back up into some background details as we go here. But right now, what are you hearing on the ground? What is happening to the ethnic Armenians and the population in Nagorno-Karabakh at this very moment? The entire Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh is being evacuated. Some of these people are being evacuated from villages that are surrounded by Azerbaijani troops. So Russian peacekeepers are bringing them out of these villages and bringing them to the Republic of Armenia. And I personally view these as essentially forced deportations. I mean, Azerbaijan claims that they have the choice to stay if they want to, but you're stuck in a village surrounded by troops from a country that's been promising to kill you for three years. So... Um, that's happening to those people. Then during the attack from September 19 to September 21, something like half of the population was driven out of their homes by the bombing. And all those people went to the capital city of Stepanakert. And those people are being evacuated as well. And many residents of Stepanakert are choosing to leave on their own. Uh, so we've had people running around the city trying to find 
five liters of fuel, 10 liters of fuel to put in their cars, uh, to head for the border with Armenia. Remember, this region has been under a blockade for nine months, so there's very little fuel to begin with. Uh, there's very little medicine when the hospital was swamped with wounded people from the bombing campaign. Many people died who might otherwise have lived. Um, I believe it was Monday night now, uh, people were queuing up in front of uh, a fuel tanker trying to get fuel for their cars to leave. And there was an explosion and something like 200 people were killed in that explosion. Um, one of them is the cousin of a friend of mine. They still can't find him. Uh, sorry, they don't know that he's been killed, but he was there when the explosion happened and they can't find him yet. Um, wow. And now every car that's leaving the territory is being checked by Azerbaijani troops. So a drive that should take an hour and a half is now taking 25, 30 hours for every car that's leaving. People are running out of gas, idling on the highway, and we're starting to have our first reports of Armenians being kidnapped at the border as they try to leave by Azerbaijani troops. Um, so it's still extremely grave. We need um, help to get these people out safely. I mean, the U.S. has done nothing for these people so far, but whatever they can do now to make sure these people can escape with their lives uh, would be very welcome. You know, th this has been going on, and just so people understand, the only roadway, right, that connects Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh, that was blocked last December by Azerbaijan. That blockade continued, and we've talked about this, but for those who don't know, it cut off medicine, it cut off essential surgeries, it cut off transport in or out resources. That was already going on for almost a year, and now you have people being forced out of their out of their homes. I think, you know, because this has been going on for so long, and I know that the West stepped in at moments to try to facilitate, you know, peace talks and, and all these different interventions. But why do you think the Biden administration in particular, knowing this was going on, hearing the warnings from you and others, did not do more to stop this from happening? This was a plan, Billy. Um, the, a major foreign policy priority of the Biden administration and of the Trump administration and of every administration since George Bush has been to secure a military and economic alliance with Azerbaijan. Um, and the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan has been a big obstacle uh, towards solidifying that alliance. Uh, so the U.S. has been trying to get peace at any price between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan is the bigger country, they're the more powerful country, and they made it clear that their price is Nagorno-Karabakh. And so what's, what's clear to me is that the U.S. was trying to look for the most painless way for this to happen. And I think they just got it. I think they just got it. Um, the wow. leaders of Armenia and Azerbaijan are going to meet again for peace talks in Spain on October 6th, and maybe they'll sign a peace treaty. We'll see. You know, you look at this and there's a deep history here, right? There, were, there was another battle, another attack by Azerbaijan in 2020. Um, and, and obviously there have been a number of skirmishes. This goes back to the way, and feel free because you are the historian on this to correct me on any of this, but it goes back to the ways in which when the USSR dissolved, these lands were, were chopped up. But having said that, this region that we're talking about Armenians have lived there forever. In fact, some of the oldest Christian sites and heritage um, arenas are in and culture are in that space, correct? That's right. And just today I saw um, a video from a news source that I trust of Azerbaijani troops firing weapons on a 13th century monastery 
in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and that's, that's just the beginning. You know, the, the destruction of the Christian heritage of this land is going to be total. So I want to pivot here because this is really important. One of the things that people might be missing in this is that Turkey um, obviously has had a role in praising this, being involved so much so that the president of Turkey headed over to Azerbaijan after this attack unfolded and after essentially the region was turned over to Azerbaijan and praised this. <laughs> the Ottoman Empire, you know, Turkey, uh, they were responsible for a genocide already against the Armenians. And so the big question that comes to mind for me watching this is Armenia proper? Is Armenia itself in danger now that this region has fallen? I think we have to expect that, Billy. Um, when, when you speak about the Armenian genocide quite correctly, it's good to remember what the final phase of the Armenian genocide was. The final phase of the Armenian genocide was the Ottoman Empire invading the land that is today southern Armenia and killing the Armenians who lived there to try to connect the Turkish Muslims of Turkey with the Turkish Muslims of Azerbaijan to create kind of a united um, um, Turkish Muslim front in the region. And today, Turkey and Azerbaijan are demanding to have an extraterritorial corridor across that same part of Southern Armenia. That means that they would essentially get a slice of land that would cut Armenia in half and that they would control that land and be able to, to send uh, cars and trucks to each other without going through a different country. Um, so that's one very troubling thing. When you, as you mentioned, President Erdogan of Turkey went to Azerbaijan, he actually went right to that area, right up to the spot where they want this land corridor. And he was talking about how we need this land corridor now. Um, for Armenia, this is a non-starter. They can't agree to it. And so war might very well be coming about that. The other thing to remember is that according to the government of Azerbaijan, it's not just Nagorno-Karabakh that belongs to them. It's all of the Republic of Armenia. They say the entire Republic of Armenia is their historic lands. And in the last three years, they've started up a propaganda campaign across the entire government uh, calling for a return to West Azerbaijan. Uh, they've created whole societies for West Azerbaijan. They started like doing weather broadcasts where they report on what the weather is like in these different cities in West Azerbaijan. It's a comprehensive effort to prepare the people for more conflict, more conquest. Um, and remember, Azerbaijan has been aggressing against the Armenians since 2016 until now, and they've never faced any consequences for it. So why would they stop at this point now that they've gotten almost everything they've wanted through war? Why would they stop now? Wow, that is some really, really eye-opening stuff in that interview there, Billy, on Nagorno, Nagorno. And we definitely need to be praying for that for sure. I mean, that is something, again, I said the, the media is not paying a whole lot of attention. You'll see some bits and pieces here from mainstream media, but there's not any urgency to it. And you hear what he's saying there, and this is really, really bad. Yeah, they're not using the word genocide in the media, too. They're they're saying things like ethnic cleansing and the U.S., you know, everybody's avoiding this term, but it meets the definition from what I can see from the U.N. of what a genocide actually is. And so they've already gone through this once. Let's yeah. not forget this. Yeah, definitely. So prayers, prayers out to all the Christians and all the people really in that region right now and um, that leaders would make decisions and that God would intervene and, and kind of make uh, that situation start to improve. Uh, but right now, it's not looking good. 
All right, we have time for one last thing on the podcast this week. We're going to look at Proverbs 12, 18. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And it's just a reminder that, yes, your words do have power and we should choose them wisely. I reflect on James and I think at all the other places that we see in scripture where we're told to watch what we say. And yet the culture tells us to act out, push back, yeah. fight back. Right. Post it's, it. it's so. Yeah. I mean, like win the battle. It's like, well, no, that it's so countercultural what we're called to. But yet the evidence of faith in us is what leads us to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, and I think so often, too, the wisest thing we can do in certain situations is, situations is to say nothing. Yeah. Uh, and that is a, a very difficult thing to do when we have every app at our disposal and we have, uh, you know, instant communication with people. Sometimes it's better just to not communicate and just to listen. Yeah. Slow to speak, quick to listen. Yeah. Is uh, another proverb as well. So, all right. Good stuff. Good spot to leave it here for the week. And I hope you have a fantastic weekend coming up. As always, get yourself on over to CBNnews.com and faithwire.com for more news from a Christian perspective. Lord willing, and that creek don't rise, we shall return on Monday with more. God bless. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.